This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by LifeWay, publisher of The Sermon on the Mount Bible Study by Jen Wilkin. In this nine-session study, Wilkin invites readers to examine and learn from Jesus' longest recorded message and challenge themselves to think differently about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. With your purchase, you'll also receive access to this study's video sessions. Get your copy today at lifeway.com slash sermon on the mount. You're listening to the Gospel Coalition podcast, equipping the next generation of believers, pastors, and church leaders to shape life and ministry around the gospel. TGC podcast now exclusively features keynote and breakout sessions from our national, regional, and women's conferences. Today, we bring you a message from Alistair Begg. This message was originally given at the Gospel Coalition's 2018 West Coast Conference in Orange County, California. I invite you to turn with me to 2 Timothy and to chapter 4. And as you turn there, it's a great privilege to be here and to be in the company of others who do what I do Sunday by Sunday and week by week and in certain cases to be in the presence of those, our wives, who sustain us and support us in ways that only we know and God knows. And I never tire of acknowledging the sense of great gratitude and dependence that I have upon my wife, and I I know that I share that with each of the men uh, that are present here this morning. Thank you for the privilege of being with you. Now let me read from uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and the first Uh, eight verses. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure ministry, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist. (laughs) That is almost Freudian. Um, Let's take verse 6 again here. Uh, as five as it is, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. 
Hence there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Amen. Well, just a brief prayer, an old Anglican prayer. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For your Son's sake, amen. There's nothing like the prospect of death to clarify the issues of life. As Samuel Johnson on one occasion said, when a man knows he's to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. And I begin in this way because what I want to do is essentially reverse into this passage. I want to acknowledge uh, verses 6, 7, and 8, and then deal more directly with verses uh, 1 to 5. Uh, Paul here is identifying the fact that he is on his way out. He refers to his passing as his departure, his analusis, uh, a favorite word in Greek at the time for the uh, unyoking of an oxen or for the drawing of an anchor, for the taking down of a tent to return to one's permanent dwelling. So there's no sense of undue anxiety about this. He recognizes that uh, the writer to the Ecclesiastes had it perfectly plain when he wrote, death is the destiny of every man. The living must take this to heart. And so it is that as he realizes that the a baton of faith needs to be passed on to another generation. His gaze is on his young lieutenant, Timothy, and he is able to let him know, surely for his great encouragement, that God has sustained uh, his mentor, if you like, the apostle, through all these very many dangerous toils and snares. And he is able to say without any sense of self-assertion or self-aggrandizement, verse 7, and in the Greek, as you will know, uh, the, the, the nouns come first. So it actually reads, the fight I have fought, the race I have finished, the faith I have kept. And what an amazing declaration of the grace and goodness of God. And it leads to the henceforth. The now leads to the then. And so he has this picture of the welcome and of the great triumph that is represented in all that God has in store for those who love him. Uh, the crown is an emblem of victory, if you like. Uh, the language that he uses is the language of certainty. There's no sense in which he's saying, and I do hope that somehow or another is going to work out properly. No, he says, there is laid up for me. It's in will call. I remember when I came to America for the first time and someone invited me to a game and I said, where will I get my ticket? And they said, it's in will call. I didn't even, I didn't know if that was one word or two words or what it was, but I didn't want to admit that I was so silly. And so I said, oh, that's fine. But then when I got to the place, I didn't know what I was looking for. And uh, eventually I did uh, track it down. Well, uh, the certainty of it is there. Uh, there is laid up for me. And then he says, and of course, not that it is uh, something that is unique to me, but the righteous judge will take care of things on the appointed day, and this will be granted not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. 
Uh, when this passing world is done, and when has sunk yon uh, setting sun, wrote McShane in his late 20s, then, in light of that, he says, then we'll really know uh, what's happening. Now, that is all I want to do with those verses. I leave you for homework to fill all the blanks in, and uh, there are plenty to be filled in. At the end of chapter 3, which, of course, leads us into chapter 4, the Apostle Paul has been not informing Timothy of something that he didn't know, but rather he's been reminding him of that which he must never forget. That's really the task of the pastor, isn't it, in the ongoing teaching of the Bible? Uh, Despite the fact that many people are looking for the intriguing and the new and the novel, faithfulness to the task involves so much of reminding people of what together we must never forget. Taking a leaf, if you like, out of the Apostle Peter's book. Although you know these things and are firmly grounded in the truth that you have, I intend always to remind you of these things so that after my departure, my analysis, when I have faded from view, that you will be able to bring these things to mind. And so it is that he has reminded him of the Scriptures, the well-known verses there in 16 and 17 of chapter 3. They are divinely inspired. They are completely reliable. They are totally sufficient. And they provide the key to the competence and usefulness of the man of God. And so it is that Timothy, having already in this letter been made aware of the fact that people had turned away from Paul, had deserted him. It seemed like it had been a whole-scale abandonment. Now he wants to make sure that Timothy understands, they turned away from me, and verse 4, and they will turn away from you as well. In fact, if you think about it, from a human perspective, from a human perspective, there was no guarantee that the church was going to make it into the next generation. For now, this is the transition from the apostolic to the post-apostolic church. Therefore, it is not a matter of marginal concern. In the relay race, that little box, however large it is, is the place in which that transition must take place. If it is dropped before, during, or after, you're pretty well finished. And so Paul is saying, now listen here. They gave me the business, and they'll give you the business as well. And so let me just remind you. And then he issues this charge. And that would really be my first point in verses 1 and 2, the charge that he gives to Timothy. I charge you. Let's just say a couple of things about it. First of all, it is a solemn charge. It is a solemn charge. There's nothing casual or inconsequential about it. One of the great dangers of the world in which we now live is a sort of superficial frivolity about things. And it can creep into every area of our lives. Funeral services where you're not allowed to be sad because it's now a celebration. Whoever turned a funeral into a celebration? I'll tell you why. Because we don't have a theology for sadness. We don't really have a theology for suffering. We want immediately to move to the celebratory and triumphant aspects of things before we have even had the moment to sit and say, death is a dreadful enemy, the last enemy to be destroyed. And we do a great disservice, I think, in passing, in the way many of us have been tempted to transform the solemnization of death 
with a celebration of life. And so the screens are filled with pictures of Mr. Thompson, you know, when he was uh, skiing in, uh, in Vail and uh, when he was surfing in Hawaii and when he was successful and whatever it is. But the tragedy is the guy is dead. You see, he's in a box right at the front here. And nobody wants to think about this. So, well, let's just put pictures of him up there. But he's not up there. And depending on where you are, you'll receive this dreadful poetry that goes along with it. He is not here. He has just moved to the other room. To which you need to say, no, he hasn't. I was in the other room, and he wasn't there. Because he isn't there. Now, that's just a, that's a, that's a tangential run that I did not plan, and I will bring myself... I will bring myself right back on track. We're not talking about funerals. Alistair, we're not talking about funerals. I, I acknowledge that. That's fine. <laughs> Matthew, to the point of solemnness or solemnization, Matthew Henry says, the best of men have need to be awed, A-W-E-D, to the discharge of their duty. The best of men have need to be awed to the discharge of their duty. Now, what could be more awesome than these opening phrases from the pen of Paul? I charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Timothy exercises his ministry with the Father and the Son as his witness. And when Jesus comes, he is going to appear and he will judge the living and the dead. Now, Paul lived his life in light of Christ's appearing. His whole spiritual journey is framed by that appearing on the Damascus Road and the appearing that he now anticipates when he will encounter Christ in all of his glory. The consummation of his kingdom filled his vision. And what he's now saying to Timothy is, it is vital, Timothy, that this is true of you. After all, as a pastor, you're keeping watch over the souls of your flock. They're under your care. The writer to the Hebrews reminds us that we do so as men who must give an account. Give an account to who? Give an account to the great shepherd of the sheep. And what Paul understood lived in the light of, and now is passing on to Timothy, is the fact that the way to really live in the now is to allow the shadow of the then to be cast, as it were, over the framework of our lives. Not that we live morbid lives, but that we realize that we are very frail that we are glad to be led in praise when we sing, frail as summer's flower we flourish and blows the wind and it is gone. The grass withers, the flower falls, the word of God endures forever. It is in light of that that he then encourages him. The charge is solemn. Secondly, let me suggest to you that it is, that it is simple in the sense that it is straightforward. It's not hard to grasp all that Paul has already written concerning this. His exhortation to preach the Word of God does not, if you like, come out of the blue. There is much that he has said along the way that has led to this. He's written concerning 
the pattern of sound words in chapter 1. He refers to it as the good deposit, the word of truth in chapter 2, the sacred writings in chapter 3. All of that terminology and phraseology underpins what he now charges Timothy with. In other words, Timothy, your ministry is a ministry of the word. It is a word ministry. It is to be exercised, Timothy, in the awareness of the fact that the Word of God does the work of God by the Spirit of God in the people of God. It is a Word ministry. And effective teaching and preaching of the Bible is actually not related in any useful sense to the peculiar idiosyncrasies, abilities, or giftedness of any individual. Because the real issue in the opening up of Scripture is this. Our primary objective in opening up the Bible is not simply to give men and women a greater understanding of the portion that is under consideration with a few points of application to consider over lunchtime or later in the week. Our primary objective, we do that, but our primary objective is that the Word of God may create by the Spirit of God a divine encounter with God himself. So that we have, in a strange and mysterious way, almost been caught up and beyond all of the bits and pieces that are going on around us. It's as if you could take the individual out of it. You could put him behind a curtain. It doesn't matter anymore. For we are concerned that it is the word that is set forward. I delight to be up here. I recognize uh, what it is. It's a stage. It's not my favorite thing to preach from a stage. I don't even like the idea of a stage, as it were. But I wasn't supposed to mention that, but I've done it now. But when you go, when you go to a church in Scotland, uh, you will see something very, very different. And one of my lasting memories as a boy growing up is sitting beside my father and watching as the beetle, not the beetle, but the beetle, came out carrying a massive Bible and then went up the stairs into the pulpit. And then he laid the Bible on the pulpit. And then he opened it to the passage that would be read. And then he turned around and went back down the stairs and went away. I said, I wonder what happens next. And then the door opened out, he came again. And this time he stood aside and the minister came up. And up the stairs he came and then the beetle came behind him. And as soon as the minister had sat down, then the beetle closed the door, locked him in as it were. <laughs> So as a boy, I said, well, whatever is about to happen has got something to do with that big book that that fellow carried up there. And presumably, the man who came up just now is shut up to the task that is tied to that book. He surely must know he's not a performer on a stage. He surely must know he's an, an entertainer. He surely not must know that he hasn't been set apart for the ministry of the Word to show video clips for the rest of his life. He must know that it is about the Bible. It is the ministry of the Word of God. Why would we be surprised from the very beginning? It is from the lips of God, from the mouth of God, that we have the Word of God. Deuteronomy chapter 4. He says to Moses, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words. Hear my words. The reason that we gather is to hear from God. 
What God has said to us is far more significant than anything we ever have to say to him. Gather the people that they might hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days. I'm quoting from Deuteronomy 4, 10b. All the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. And so the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You'll tell them that. And you'll tell them that you heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. There was only a voice. Only a voice. Only a voice. Gresham Machen, late of Westminster, said to his students, it is with the open Bible that the real Christian preacher comes before the congregation. He does not come to present his opinions. He does not come to present the results of his researches in the phenomena of religion. But he comes to set forward what is contained in the Word of God. What God has spoken to the apostles has then been bequeathed to us in the pages of the New Testament, so that we now here with this apostolic material are to preach then the Word and to preach nothing but the Word of God. That's it. The great Methodist preacher in the early part of the 20th century said on one occasion, preaching is in the shadows. The world does not believe in it. Surely we're not prepared to accept the fact that now in the second decade of the 21st century, we need to use the same phraseology and just change one word. Preaching is in the shadows. The church does not believe in it. We're sorely in need of this charge. We're sorely in need of being convinced I am, as the climate around us is so various that the regular expository preaching and teaching of the Bible is the driving force that shapes authentic church life. Now, that's all in verse 1. In verse 2, Paul is making it clear that there are seasons. Preach the Word. Be ready in season. Seasons that are more daunting than others. If you stay for any length of time in a, in a pastorate, you know that there are cycles. Sometimes it feels like spring. Sometimes it feels like autumn. Sometimes it can feel forever like winter in Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, there, if you've never experienced that, you'll have to come back and I can introduce you to it. What is he saying here? Well, the NEB, that's the New English Bible. There was a translation called that. Translates this, press the message home on all occasions, convenient or inconvenient. Press the message home. When people are hostile, when they're receptive. When they're tuned in, when they're, when they're tuned out. When the prospect of Sunday is delightful, when the prospect of Sunday is dreadful. When the crowds are growing, when the crowds are dwindling. When you come home from the evening service, you tell your wife, tomorrow morning I'm going to get a proper job. And she says to you what my wife says to me, you are completely unemployable. Stick at what you're doing. <laughs> now, when we allow the Bible, when, if you like, to change metaphors, when we allow the club head to do the work, then the work of reproving and rebuking and exhorting uh, will all take place. It won't always be comfortable but it will always be profitable. That's what he had said back in chapter 3. 
The final phrase of verse 2 is the the real uh, sting in the tail for me, I think. With complete patience and teaching. What a difference a, a word like that can make. Why does it have to say complete? Why couldn't it have said with a wee bit of patience? J.B. Phillips paraphrases it, using the utmost patience in your teaching. The NIV, with great patience and careful instruction. And here, complete patience and teaching. I guess one of the things, and I was asked uh, a couple of days ago, at focus on the family by a young fellow. Well, what, what about when you were young? I said, I beg your pardon. But uh, he said, what about when you were young? And I... Uh, And I said, well, I think he was asking about what can younger men learn. And I said, you know, looking back on it, I I regret how impatient I was with my congregation. How hortatory, or hortatory, I think you say, how how hortatory that my exhort, it was all exhorting, you know, come on, come on. (laughs) You know, did you not hear me? I said, come on. And when you're young, you know, you look at other guys, you think, well, I could, I'll do that right now. I mean, I'll, I'm going to do that now. And you need to read Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, a young minister is prone to try to attain by one jump the height which others have reached by a long series of single steps in the labor of quarter of a century. We tend to overestimate what we can accomplish in a year and underestimate what we can accomplish in five years. Well, we should move on, shouldn't we? Just let's recap. The charge is solemn, and it is at the same time straightforward. It is the inerrant word of God we need to preach when the wind is with us and when all occasions do inform against us. And we are to do this patiently and carefully. Now, he goes on to say the reason that this charge is so vitally important is because there is uh, a real challenge in the climate in which uh, Timothy was operating there uh, in an environment that was full of people who were, on the one hand, doctrinally not really very uh, alert and certain, and consequently, morally, all over the place. We might actually summarize his context or the climate in which he was ministering and fulfilling this charge as as a realm of moral and doctrinal confusion. I think that would help us immediately to say, well, I think I can identify with that. Because he's already made aware that there have been those who have swerved from the truth. Remember back in chapter 2, Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth. And so Timothy needs to exercise his ministry with people who are turning away from the truth and who are turning in to myths. The time is coming. Well, it's always coming. What he's referring to here is not unique to a period in history. It's not something that was In the future for Timothy, there was no reason for him to simply point to uh, an eventuality that was not his to consider. No, no. This is a recurring phenomenon. He had said in chapter 3, understand that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Now, when we quoted from Deuteronomy 4, which was a long time before he writes this letter, 
Moses had given a real clear word to the people, hadn't he? God has spoken to me, and he's told me to get you together here. There's a lot of stuff going on around you. Earthquakes and lightnings and flashings and many, many things to distract you. But I want to tell you that God has spoken, and I come to remind you that it was only a voice. Well, you read on there in Deuteronomy and beyond, and what do you discover? That within a very short period of time, those same people of God who had received a direct word through the servant and the prophet Moses had forsaken the audible for the visual. It seemed far more appealing to them now to see what other people were doing with their little religious expressions and so on. It was going to be far easier for them to embrace some of that stuff, even to invite some of their friends there, than have to sit and listen to, quotes another boring sermon. But we're not going to have another talk, are we? I hope you're not one of those people in your congregation that asks the pastor if you can have communion without preaching, or prayer without the Word. Do you know how quickly in a generation the dependence upon the Word of God can shift? What had happened to the people was that they had just begun to do exactly what the Bible says they would do, and that is they began to bow before the Creator. Not before the Creator, I should say. They began to bow before, before their own little creations. They, in Romans' terms, exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And so Timothy has to recognize that this is no walk in the park to preach the Word in a context that is not dissimilar to that which has gone before. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. He's already been exhorted to follow the pattern of sound words. In his first letter, he's warned Timothy about some who teach a different doctrine that does not accord with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, of those who, instead of availing themselves of the teaching that will make them godly and make them spiritually healthy and spiritually useful, they have gone off in search of the intriguing, the fascinating, the speculative, and the spicy. Now, this is the recurring story of the people of God through the Old Testament and into the New, into the context here of Ephesus. So why would we be surprised in our generation to face the very same things? People who are more interested in novelty than they are in orthodoxy. People who, if they don't really like the way the Word of God is opened up to them, they simply move off down the street. In sort of baseball diamond terms, if they, don't like the, if they don't like the look of it there, they just take their baseball bat and move off to another place. Sometimes they should be disciplined in the place where they were. No. And why? Well, I would like a teacher who's a, who's a nice teacher, not like you, Beg. I would like somebody... You don't, I would like somebody to tell me what I want to hear. That's what it says. They would, they, their itchy ears would cause them to accumulate for themselves. So that in contemporary terms, this CD, that download, this video, that piece. If you found their car, it's laden up with all manner of this idea, that concept, this concept, everything. They're, they've got it all everywhere. And they're clueless. Clueless. 
The more they amass the material, the less they seem to understand. That wasn't unique to Timothy's day. Isaiah confronts the very same thing, the people of God rejecting the instruction. Not because it wasn't clear, but because it was clear. <laughs> it wasn't that they didn't understand. It was they understood it too well. I'd just been removed from my usual teaching at a, at a university in, uh, in a part of the country that's not too far from here. But the reason why I was removed, it wasn't because they couldn't understand me. It was because they could understand me. And I happened in the course of my address to the university to say, according to the Bible, marriage is heterosexual, it is monogamous, and it lasts for life. And that resulted in a walkout on the part of the student body in a Christian college. It wasn't that they didn't understand me. They understood me too well. Isaiah 30, they are a rebellious people, says God through his prophet. Lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and say to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Cue the song. Tell me lies, tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies. <laughs> it is no new thing to encounter those who are in search of and in turn proponents of spirituality disconnected from biblical truth. That is why Paul has said to Timothy earlier on, Timothy, continue in the things you have become convinced of, knowing those from whom you learned them, and how from infancy you have known the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation. How I thank God at this point in my life for parents who ignored all my stupid boyhood rebellion and said, I know you think this and that, but you'll be in church with us. And yes, you'll be in church again with us and again with us. And as I look back on my life, I realize in the providence of God, probably most of my Bible memorization took place before the age of 15. Well, we should move on. You have the same thing in Jeremiah. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in land the prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. It's quite gloomy, isn't it? You say, well, who do you think you are? You think you're Jeremiah yourself, a reincarnation? Is it, is it going to go on like this all the way to the end? I don't know. I'm looking at my notes just now. I'll see if there's anything encouraging before we finish. But... <laughs> they, The observation, the condemnation that is represented in the word of God through the prophets has application far beyond Jeremiah's day. 
It rings with sad and telling judgment on my native land, once the land of the book. Have you been there lately? You have to search it out, don't you? I'll say nothing about my adopted home for the last 35 years. You can make your own judgments on that. So the charge then in 1 and 2, I hope, is a clear, simple, straightforward charge. The climate in verses 3 and 4 is not exactly attractive. This picture of people roaming to and fro, reminding as of how spiritual they are in their interest, and yet how confused they are in relationship to things. We being tempted, perhaps, to move a little with the flow or do whatever we're going to do, and being called back and saying to ourselves, well, what? given that this is the climate, what am I supposed to do now? What do I do in this environment? I was thinking about it this morning. I was reading over my notes early in the morning, and as I was thinking that thought to myself, it reminded me of a golf game that I had played at a club on the east side of Cleveland some years ago when I was invited by one of the people in my congregation to play in a member guest event. And I was actually quite nervous about it, and my nerves, combined with a classic lack of inability, uh, proved, uh, proved very strong in the opening holes. And uh, the, the opening hall, I know, I know the course well, and I, I, was, I was out of the hole very early on. My, the extra stroke that I had because of my exorbitantly high handicap was, was, was proved totally useless. Um, and so my, the fellow who had taken me, because he thought my high handicap, combined with a measure of providence, might yield benefits. And... Uh, the, the, the second hole is a, do, is a big dog leg to the right, and I made a, I hit it into, uh, it was terrible. And, uh, and, and the, thir the third hole had a long run of, has a long run of trees on the left-hand side from the tee, and it stretches way down. I stood up on the tee, even more nervous now as a result of the first two holes, and I put the ball within about uh, 25 feet directly into the trees on the left. And uh, we made it to the end of that hole, Number four is a par three. And I hit my ball on this par three. It went through the green and into a bunker behind the green. I went in the bunker. I hit it out of the bunker. It went through the green and into the bunker on the front side of the green. <laughs> I'm not inventing this. It's, it's etched indelibly in my... In fact, I need counseling for this. <laughs> I went in the bunker. Now we hit one in a bunker. A two in the bunker, now it's a par three, so I'm hitting three out of the bunker. I, I, I'm determined to, to get it out, and I do get it out. I get it, it goes beyond everything in, in, in proximity and ricochets off into oblivion somewhere over here. <laughs> and as I come out, I, I look at Jimmy and I say, what do I do now? <laughs> and he said, get in the cart. <laughs> It was so humiliating. <laughs> I take my putter, I sat in the cart, you know, <laughs> waiting for him to finish the hole. And the people, they don't know me. And now we're on, I mean, it's, oh, it was terrible, but I, it, was, it was beyond comprehension. What do I do now? Get in the cart. Well, here's Timothy, and he says, what do I do now? And what does he say? Well, he doesn't say get in the cart. He basically says to him, get committed. Get committed. 
And he gives it to us very straightforwardly. In the NIV, I think I remember it, uh, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Four imperatives, four more imperatives to the five that we've already encountered, although I didn't mention them in verse 2. Here is a tall order, Timothy. Here is a man-sized challenge, with due respect to all the ladies present. Here is a realistic statement of what Christian ministry is all about. Confronted by opposition, by isolation, it would be relatively easy for him to throw in the towel. In, uh, in uh, Olympian terms, uh, to jump out of the relay and throw himself down on the grass. But this is no time for self-pity. This is rather an opportunity to stay steady, to face whatever suffering may come, to go on steadily preaching the gospel, to complete the task. So let's just notice these, and then you can make a sermon out of them on your own. Because if you haven't prepared for Sunday, you're going to need something, and you might as well have verse 5. <laughs> so I'll give you the points. Actually, the points are here, and then you just fill it in. I do it myself. We all use Spurgeon. We figure he's dead. We'll talk to him about it later. So what are we to do? This preaching the word business is so jolly difficult. Number one, always be sober-minded. Always be sober-minded. That's the NIV. Keep your head. There were people all around him who had become intoxicated, if you like, with the heady wine of all this different nonsense. They had wandered away. They had drifted off. Therefore, it would not be a good time for him to use pastoral cruise control or to put things on automatic pilot. I flew here from uh, Colorado Springs yesterday, courtesy of a friend. We landed first in Camarillo and then from Camarillo down to Orange County. And the thing that struck me was not the fact that I was able to see how meticulous they were in doing the pre-flight check, leaving Colorado Springs, but when it was only me left on the airplane from Camarillo to Orange County, and they had already done all that stuff, they did it all again before they left from Camarillo to make a, like, 14-minute flight. Some of us, they think, oh, we've got this covered. How are we on your plea pre-flight check. Do you remember when you used to actually kneel down at your chair when you read your notes before you finally preached them? Do you remember the times in the middle of the night when you couldn't sleep? You lay, you lay down on the bedroom floor. Your wife didn't know what the world was going on. Well, surely we haven't got beyond that. You didn't fall asleep. Essential that we're alert, that we're vigilant that we're not succumbing to the speculative notions. We're not allowing ourselves to be unsettled by the numbers that are drawn away by other kinds of teachers. If you think about it, he's saying here, uh, make sure that you are always sober-minded. In other words, this sense of keeping the head and being alert and engaged is not to be intermittent. If we go back to the flight analogy for just a moment, well, you get on the flight with uh, Alaska Airlines or whatever else it is, and the fellow comes on and he says, to, he says and we're going to head out now to Boston, and I want you to know that it is, uh, it is my firm intention uh, not to crash very often. 
You say, I've got to get off right now. Not to crash very often, not to crash at all. Not intermittent. Keep your head always in all situations. Secondly, endure suffering. Suffering. It's not a new note. He began that way, didn't he, in the letter? Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He went on to say, and you should know, this is why I suffer as I do. In chapter 2, he says, this is my gospel for which I am suffering. In Paul's case, it was certainly physical, as it is for many of our brothers and sisters throughout the world today. For Timothy, may have proved that way in the end. For us, it may be more mental, more emotional, although physical may be on our horizon. People chasing around in search of all kinds of acceptable gospels. There's a cost involved in guarding the good deposit to be prepared to declare in public and in private the Bible's assessment of man, qua man, as sinful, guilty, responsible, and lost. May I say, especially to the younger men who are here, if you are prepared in your pulpit, winsomely, kindly, but unequivocally, to declare man's condition as a sinner before God, it will come at a cost. You will suffer because you will face accusations. You will face insinuations. The evil one comes to us then to deceive us, to discourage us, to derail us if he could. That's why Paul, when he gives his, imper his imperatives, he's, he's always framing them in the indicative, isn't he? That's why at the beginning of, of chapter 2, he says, um, be, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Because you get up in the morning and say, I don't know if I'm sufficient for this. I thought this would get easier. It's getting harder the older I get. And I go back to verse 5. Oh, but I remember now. I'm supposed to keep my head, endure suffering. Thirdly, do the work of an evangelist. I don't think Paul is suggesting a change of job for Timothy that he's going to move from being a pastor to an evangelist. Rather, he's simply reinforcing the charge to preach the word. Philip's paraphrase is it, go on steadily preaching the gospel. I've always been helped by Jim Packer in a quote from a quest from God, for godliness in relationship to this. Because as we unfold the Bible, we're always dealing both in, in evangelism and in edification. And the things are interwoven with one another. And this quote I found helpful, and you can find it uh, in that book for yourself eventually. Uh, Packer writes, If one preaches the Bible biblically, one cannot help preaching the gospel all the time. And every sermon will be, as Bolton said, at least by implication, evangelistic. In my lifetime, I've watched, sadly, as good and effective godly gospel ministers have deviated from course for all kinds of reasons, many of them at least initially good. But Paul says, Timothy, you didn't neglect the ongoing work of declaring that the Son of God came to die for us and for our sins, that he now offers to close us in his righteousness, to present us faultless before his presence in eternity, that the only safe haven for a man or a woman is in the mercy of God as manifested in Christ in whom every part of our salvation is complete. 
The passion for evangelism, wrote John Murray on one occasion, is quenched when we lose sight of the grandeur of the gospel. And finally, in a great summary phrase, he says, and I want you to make sure you fulfill your ministry. Keep going. Finish the job. Discharge all the duties. Carry out to the full the commission God gave you. Sometimes on a Saturday, I used to help my father try and polish his car. He kept his car very clean, and uh, he, he would polish it. He put on Simon, Simon Axe or something it was called. It was, it was, and it made it all very cloudy. And then in a burst of enthusiasm, I would come out, and, and I'd say, may I help you, Dad? And then he would give me a duster, and then he would give me an assigned piece, you know, maybe just behind the, uh, beside the bonnet and behind the, the headlights. And I would start off with great enthusiasm. And then in relatively short order, I would say, I, I, think, I'll, I think I'll go somewhere else now. <laughs> or sometimes I just grew a little less enthusiastic. And so instead, it's like at the car wash now when I watch boys. I had a guy doing my car the other day. He had one hand in his pocket and the other hand, he was just <laughs> rubbing my bits. And I'm saying to myself, this guy wants a tip for this? He's doing like that. But I, then I, and then I felt, I hear my father's voice. He used to say to me, son, rub it. Don't tickle it. <laughs> Timothy's made a promise in his ordination. So have you, so have I. Timothy was indebted to Paul just as you and I are indebted to those who have led us, who have nurtured us, who continue to inspire, encourage and inspire us. Timothy was preaching in between two worlds, between the unerring authority and sufficiency of the Word of God and a world in which that Word was opposed. He was ministering in a climate where the foundations were crumbling underneath people's feet. And so are we. And he needed to be absolutely convinced of the foundation upon which he stood and therefore of the sufficient authority of the word as it was conveyed. Ligon mentioned my friendship with Sinclair. And... Actually, I adopted him as my big brother. Not officially, but unofficially. When my father died, I figured I don't have a brother, so I will adopt Sinclair. If you want to choose a big brother, choose a good one. And uh, so there we have it. Well, it just so happens that before I left, uh, the, uh, he had written to me just a very brief text the other night. And the text uh, on my phone said, sitting in the dark, and then he put, externally, so that I wouldn't think that he'd gone into the dark side, sitting. <laughs> Only Sinclair would think that he had to clarify that. I, I didn't think for a minute, you know, that he'd gone, that he'd become a, a voodoo priest or something. I said. <laughs> anyway, it reads, sitting in the dark thinking about you, had Alec Matias' book on preaching in hand. Full stop. Next sentence. Now we are those older men. Now we are those older men. So let me finish with a quote from J.C. Ryle. Fear not, for the church of Christ 
when ministers die and saints are taken away. Christ can ever maintain his own cause. He will raise up better servants and brighter stars. The stars are all in his right hand. Leave off all anxious thought about the future. Cease to be cast down by the measures of statesmen or the plots of wolves in sheep's clothing. Christ will ever provide for his own church. Christ will take care that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. All is going on well, though our eyes may not see it. The kingdoms of this world shall yet become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. Well, Father, we believe that. And we pray that you will help us to live in the light of it. Save us, Lord, from turning our pulpits into a kind of cursing of the darkness or moaning and groaning about things. Lord, just please uh, help us to have our feet firmly planted, grounded in the foundation laid for us in your word so that we might reach out from that solid place, our hands, our arms, our lives, our love to those who wrestle with a troubled sea so that along with Paul and Timothy and the rest, we will join in declaring in your presence, for it is from him and through him and to him that are all things. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast. For more gospel-centered resources, visit thegospelcoalition.org.